Hello, and welcome to the Science is Gray podcast, a space where we explore the gray areas and intersections of science, ethics, and social justice. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate liberation activist, I believe social progress and justice depend on bringing science and ethics together for a holistic and nuanced approach to creating a compassionate and sustainable world for all beings. Today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Aditya Prakash, also known as Soitheist on social media, an Indian YouTuber and content creator who speaks about animal rights, identity politics, and more with a no-nonsense, straightforward, and logical approach. In this episode, you will probably feel like a fly on the wall listening to our open and honest conversation about a wide range of topics, including everything from our thoughts on cultural relativism to what neocolonialism is to toxic identity politics and Western bias online and in the news. I really appreciate Aditya's no-nonsense approach to many of these topics, as well as how willing he is to dialogue on a number of issues, even when we may disagree. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think you will too. And really quickly before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that if you visit my website, bornvegan.org, you can find more of my work and sign up for my email list to get notified every time I release a new episode. Plus, all the links to my social media pages and YouTube channel are there if you'd like to engage with me more frequently. And if you'd like to support my work and help this podcast and information reach more people, I also just recently launched a Patreon account, and you can find the link for that in the show notes and on my website as well. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Aditya. I'm really excited to have you. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor. So I think I first came across your uh, Instagram and YouTube maybe back in like 2020 when there was a debate in the animal rights community about the use of Holocaust comparisons. Um, I think that's when I first came across your page. Um, and what? Yeah. Okay. And I have to admit, like, I think I disagreed with you on a few points. Um, but I really appreciated your willingness to speak openly and share what you really thought Mm -hmm. and, and dialogue with people who had different opinions and perspectives. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's, that's first how I think we connected and kind of on that note, before we jump into this more, can you tell me a little bit about your background. Okay, sure. So first, let's start with what I do. Right? What, uh, what, what is uh, the Soy Theist channel about, which is what I go by mm-hmm. on the internet. Uh, first of all, Soy Theist is, is like a combination of the two words, Soy Boy and Atheist. Uh, soy Boy is an insult. I kind of um, own that, like uh, really, and just combined it with the word atheist. So initially my channel was about these two topics. It's about veganism and atheism, but I don't really speak much about uh, atheism anymore, but I do have, uh, I have started speaking about identity politics a lot more. And uh, I think these topics, veganism, religion, identity politics, and politics in general, I think these are topics that require a very straightforward, no-nonsense approach. And what I try to do is I try to offer that. Now, 
if everyone tried to do that, okay, people run into certain problems. So for example, uh, if you're a quote, white cisgender heterosexual male living in the United States of America, you do what I do and you're, you're gonna get into a lot of trouble. You're gonna, people are going to come after you saying things like, oh no, no, you don't get it. You're too privileged, that kind of stuff. But given the position that I am in, and we'll get to that in a bit, I can speak more freely about these things and I have to worry far, far less about about these baseless accusations. Like people can't point to me and say that, you know, you are too privileged, right? That, that would make no sense for most of the people in the world. And why does it not make sense for most people in the world? Okay, so to begin with, I live in... Uh, India, which is, uh, there are many terms for to categorize, uh, categorize India into, it can be called a developing country, it can be called a so-called third world country, uh, it can be called the global south, part of the global south, and so on. I come from a sort of region of India that is considered disenfranchised, uh, it's the northeastern region of India, and then further, uh, I come from a tribe within the northeast that is considered disenfranchised within the northeast so again because of all these factors i have turned this sort of disadvantage which is which is a real disadvantage i've turned that into a into an advantage and i use that uh to speak more freely about these matters that i consider crucial uh that is what i do on the internet uh technically i'm trained in physics so i have a background in physics i have a bachelor's uh, uh in physics so that's my education uh, so that would be my background unless uh, uh you have something more that you'd like to know no that's very cool i did not know you were trained in physics either so my background is in biochemistry as well mm -hmm. so i do mostly vegan activism now but i come from a science background and mm -hmm. um so yeah that's that's really cool thank you for sharing so what then what do you feel from your experiences and your life has been most influential in shaping, you know, how you arrived at your views and thoughts today? I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's mostly my, I had a real interest in physics, right? Uh, and because of that, what happened is, uh, when you're studying uh, the sciences and physics, you inevitably end up studying and um, sort of developing an interest so to speak, in logic and uh, rationality and that kind of philosophy. So I think science and reason, these uh, are what I mostly try to base my worldview on. But at the end of the day, there is an emotive side to everything. And we are human beings and we, uh, we must take that into account as well. So I, 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 it's, it's, I try to ma make it on uh, that side, but I do take uh, emotions and that kind of stuff into account, but I try not to base my worldview on them. It sounds confusing, I know, but hopefully we can elaborate on that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited to get into this because I've been wanting to have a conversation about sort of cultural relativism. And, and I don't know what your beliefs, you know, on this topic are. And it's something that I've explored and have mixed feelings about in different situations and and i want to do it with nuance so i'm really excited to get more into that and hear um what you think so let's let's move that direction 
you know, I assume you're familiar with the term cultural relativism. Yes. What are your thoughts on this term and as an idea? Right. I, I do think I have an understanding of it, but I think for the sake of the audience and also for like, just to be clear on the terms, I think we should define it first. Okay. Um, so my understanding, and this isn't like an official definition, but when I say cultural relativism, I mean the idea that, you know, issues in the world, ethics, morality, um, science, perspectives on how we approach, you know, life are relative. There's, there's not like an absolute, um, this is right or this is wrong depending on what culture you're in, what place, the background, the experiences. So it's possible that something is moral or right in one location and culture and wrong in a different, that it kind of depends on, you know, the culture you're in as to, you know, how acceptable something is. That's my understanding of cultural relativism. So if that's the definition we're going by, then I think I would have to disagree with uh, cultural relativism and say that uh, while some things can be blurry uh, and like we don't know the correct answer and different cultures may have different answers to, to each of those questions, I think there are right and wrong answers to questions of ethics and there can be different right answers to questions of ethics and uh, culture. Um, so to give an example, maybe like to give give an example from science, there might be different methods of like, like purifying water, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and like both can be correct, but like uh, we can know that like putting for example, feces in water is definitely not a good way of clar clarifying and purifying water. Um, so, yeah, I think cultural uh, questions of ethics are also similar in that uh, uh, there can be multiple right answers, but there are also definitely wrong answers. Okay. So I'm trying to come up with an example <laughs> to kind of get more into this. Um, so... Okay, are you familiar with the book, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down? No. Okay, it's an anthropology book. I read it when I was in college. And it was kind of about cultural relativism and models of disease and views on life and death. Um, so it was about uh, a Hmong family that were immigrants to the United States but, you know, spoke and lived in an area where they spoke a different language than most doctors and medical practitioners. They had a different belief system about what caused disease and health issues. And their, like, I think, five-year-old-ish child, um, and the book covered a, a wide time span, but they had a child who had seizures, really bad seizures. It became this big drama where I think the child was actually removed from their home and put in foster care at one point because the family was bringing in, you know, their religious elders and wanting to sort of pray or cleanse. They thought that maybe there was like an evil spirit or something in the child. You know, like they had different... The, the American medical system had one belief about what was causing the issue and her family and culture had a different belief. Um, 
And when you look at the story, I found it really sad because I think a lot of the actions of our medical system really, really harmed this child. They separated her from their family. And there was also a language barrier. They didn't have the appropriate mm. translators. Um, mm. But basically, I think you get the idea of like, there was this conflict around mm -hmm. this modern medical Western belief and this, you know, other cultural belief. And, you know, the thought I had when reading this book was, what if the, mm -hmm. the American doctors did what they wanted to do and it mm -hmm. did help or save the child's life, but then they mm -hmm. grew up and were still part of a culture that believed they now, you know, had some bad spirit or something in them that had ruined, like that it was worse to have that done than be dead. That was, I think, kind of the belief. Okay. Is that actually, like, is there really an objective saving the child's life with the, you know, Western medical approach? Is that better? And that mm. really kind of made me think, and that's one of the areas where I thought cultural relativism might, you know, I could see a point to it, you know? Interesting. That's very interesting. So what I would say is um, because there was a language barrier, mm -hmm. I don't think uh, at that point, like we could discuss like about what's right and wrong. Uh, but I would say that maybe saving the child's life, right? I, I think we should, we have to see like what is, what causes more suffering there. Mm -hmm. And I would say uh, intuitively, I, I, I'd say that saving the child's life is worth it. Uh, but I do see your point. Yeah. So, I mean, I, cause I generally, when it comes mm -hmm. to especially, you know, the ethics of eating animals, I don't mm -hmm. think that moral relativism is a good argument. Like, I think that's yeah. wrong regardless of what culture you're in. Mm -hmm. But then there are these tricky scenarios that kind of make me think where I'm like, uh, more when it comes to humans or our medical system or scientific mm -hmm. issues of like, you know, or around death, like objectively, mm -hmm. you know, or even how do you quantify suffering in these situations? Mm -hmm. How do you figure right. out you know, which is really worse. And if you're, you have different cultural beliefs, it could even frame how you view or look at suffering. <laughs> right. Uh, I think it could be said that we may not know the right answer, but there could be a right answer. Mm. Uh, that like, uh, like off the top of my head, I don't know, uh, like it's been a while since I've done physics, for example. So I don't remember Schrodinger's equation, uh, but there is a right answer to the question, what is Schrodinger's equation? Uh, so maybe uh, I think there are right and wrong answers to ethics, but in this scenario, we might not know what the right answer is. Uh, so that is my view. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so then <laughs> moving, uh, another kind of follow-up to that is mm -hmm. the idea of colonization, another term. Okay that I'm sure you've heard a lot. <laughs> um, and I'm curious, like, especially as that relates to ethics and, and um, these conversations about cultural relativism as well, um, 
what do you think? And there's probably a number of different ways that people are using the term colonization mm. as well. Um, yeah. So maybe what do you think, what does that mean to you? And what are your thoughts on this idea of colonization? Colonization. Okay. That's like a very, very broad question. Isn't it? <laughs> so, maybe in uh, terms of like these same conversations around telling other people, you know, what they can or can't do or eat you know, mm. or animal ethics. Um, mm. That's that's where I see people saying, you know, like me as a white American Westerner telling theoretically someone in another culture they shouldn't eat animals, you know, mm. that's colonization. Oh, I don't think that's colonization. Uh, colonization, uh, I think, well, to, to be very specific and very technical, the colonization is when one, um, not necessarily country, but one um, entity, let's say, uh, tries to gain control over another entity. Historically, it's been mostly countries, like one country gaining control or political and economic control over another country and uh, using it, the first using it uh, for their benefit. The former using it for their benefit that's colonization right like technically and but it doesn't end there right it's not it we can't just say that's colonization and that's the end of the story uh, and and uh, like there can be neo-colonization neo-colonialism mm -hmm. which is the modern day practice of like colonialism but from like without actually being on the on the land that you're trying to loot and so forth, right? Like uh, causing harm to them and so forth. Can you give uh, me an example of what you mean by that? Neo-colonialism. Mm -hmm. Like what is something uh, you would call neo-colonial today? Mm. Like, would you call McDonald's, um, you know, a multinational corporation, Western-based, opening up restaurants all over the world would you consider that neo-colonial i don't think so no. okay would you i think i might yeah okay i think uh i, I reserve the word for like more uh like fun maybe this is serious and i'm just not aware of it uh but like i reserve it for like very heinous and more serious issues like I'll not give you, I'll not tell you where this is exactly happening because uh, I'll get in trouble if I do. Okay. Uh, but like there is a certain country in Asia uh, where there is a certain region, which is uh, like the the central government in, in this country would, for example, uh, not send proper resources to a particular region of the country. Uh, they would, uh, there are certain laws that, uh, because of which uh, people in that like sort of marginalized region of that country can be shot and killed by the uh, military without having to face consequences. Mm. Um, so that I consider neo-colonialism. The I not sending, okay, the not sending resources is what you consider not sending proper resources, but taking resources, uh, taking resources in the form of tax, 
but like not sending not allocating proper resources okay uh allowing special powers to the military to shoot civilians this kind of stuff mm-hmm. i think is uh neocolonialism that's i had not i i'm not familiar with that example that sounds horrible though yeah i feel like in lots of the conversations that i'm part of and and maybe it's the things i've read too are you familiar with vandana shiva no she is actually an indian physicist um an environmental activist as well she's written a ton of books and she speaks about colonialism all the time mostly in the environmental and food and agriculture space she's not vegan <laughs> i really like her ideas minus the fact that she doesn't seem to get the animal rights perspective yet okay but she speaks about how in our food and agriculture system that what she calls neocolonial are companies like Monsanto or these big multinational but you know often american or european based companies Bayer Monsanto Syngenta companies that are for example patenting like GMO seed and then mm-hmm. coming over this is my understanding to areas of india where there were traditional farming practices with organic you know seed saving techniques that had worked for generations mm-hmm. and then these corporations come in and try and convince farmers that their products are more efficient better you know their crops are going to grow better be more climate resistant but then they're they're patented for example mm-hmm. or they can't save the seeds and regrow them so then they create this situation with the farmers where they're selling them a product maybe not telling them the full story okay then the farmers start using that product and it sometimes doesn't grow as well or then they try and save the seed and learn that they can't or it's patented or then Monsanto sues them and it's creating this dynamic where an outside you know western corporation has now sort of changed the entire landscape of food production in a region in a way that they control it and are extracting, you know, money and resources from that at the expense and exploitation of that community. Okay. Okay, I did not know that. I would consider that neocolonialism. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um yeah, so I mean that's that's how I'm familiar with the term and and it's something that very much does concern me and I find extremely problematic when you have and that's why I brought up the McDonald's example because I don't know as much about what they're doing but from what I know about the way that many multinational corporations act I think most of their practices are often predatory and exploitative and they you know come into an area particularly and this is what to me makes it you know colonialism when they come into an area that is you know not their culture region you know tr- uh, traditional food system whatever it is like McDonald's or something and then they market and try to convince people to you know consume their products that they're better and then i think the outcome is important like i think the outcome of McDonald's coming in to other regions of the world where that wasn't the type of food that people were eating is making them sicker giving them the western diseases, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, um and extracting, you know, money from them in this kind of exploitative way. Uh I would not consider like uh 
giving them foods that people choose to eat like that i, I wouldn't consider that to be that much of a problem mm-hmm. uh like it's a problem but i don't consider it like unethical uh okay. it's on their part but i would consider like uh like making like for example the earlier example uh of like making someone depend on you and giving them no other choice i think that is unethical but like giving people options and people choosing to eat those options uh, i don't think that's unethical no is it really giving them a choice though if they have such an outsized budget and influence that they can outcompete maybe other options and market to people to make it seem like so it's you know i guess it's a question of like is that really consumer choice driven mm-hmm. you know on the free market or whatever or mm-hmm. do they have an outsized influence because they're coming in with more money and resources from an outside region and you know able to influence people in a you know maybe disproportionate manner i think as long as we're treating people as like equals i think uh, i think it should be left up uh, onto the individuals to decide uh, what they want to consume mm-hmm. uh but i do see your point that you know there is a there is a massive difference in the amount of resources available for marketing and other kind of stuff but i don't necessarily consider that unethical okay so then i'm curious now you think it's up to people to choose do you support mm-hmm. uh totally shifting gears but do you support government policy or intervention to uh, outlaw eating animals depends on what they're doing like for example in india beef is sort in certain states is outlawed mm-hmm. it's not outlawed in the state that i come from but it, it is in certain states uh and that is done for religious reasons uh it is done uh and when that happens it's not done from a um perspective of like animal rights it's done more like for religious reasons and that, that kind of stuff uh but like if it if if it was done like overall like as like throughout the system then like oil, ban all animal products ban everything then i think yeah i i think i would support that now i do realize as i'm saying that there is an inconsistency with what i said earlier it's like there seems to be an inconsistency with what i said earlier uh i think the difference is that here um in the initial case you're giving people choices like like here are here are your choices you choose between them and in in this case it's not that it's not that you say like you have to eat this it's just that you say that no no these are these are these are let's say things for example uh like the products that you had those those are things although the animals are not things uh, the products that you get those are objects right just as a human dead body is an object um so it's it's that the difference is i i suppose in saying like here's what you cannot eat and here's what you can eat i think we we can make those two statements at the same time without being inconsistent i see what you're saying i was just curious cuz that's something that in the us gets debated a lot especially 
when um, groups like DXC in California, they tried to put together, it was like a ban meet in Berkeley campaign. I don't know if you heard about that a year or two ago, I think. And a lot of people were very upset <laughs> about that. And then you had, even within the, you know, vegan community, of course, many vegans saying like, no, I don't support forcing, you know, my choices and ethics on other people. We need to let people choose. Uh, I, I think um, there is like, there are two questions to this, like whether I would do it or, and like whether or not this would work in the current scenario, I don't think this is going to work, mm. but like if, um, like if we ban it right now with only 1% of the world being vegan, I don't think it's going to work. I think we need like at least like 25% or something like that. Uh, where we can have actual sort of um, power behind the move. And at that point, yeah, I think that would be very effective because I don't think letting people just choose what they just, whatever they want to do, I don't think uh, that ends uh, injustices like like, uh, the United States have had a civil war over slavery and like that happened for a reason it's it's because a lot of people were against the abolition of slavery um uh when the british empire uh sort of receded from its colonies it it did not happen because they were like oh you know we're, we're kind of done we're kind of done now let's go back that's not what happened it's it's because of political pressure from those uh colonies and that's the reason like if they wanted, if if it really did happen, like, you know, we're done now, we're going to go back now. It would have happened like almost at the same time, maybe not all at the same time, but almost at the same time within a decade. But like, it, that's not how it happened. It's uh, depending on the political pressure from different countries, they had to recede. So, yeah, I think banning uh, the consumption of animal products is something I would support, but not at this point. I think I probably agree with you on that. Um, and it's something I've gone back and forth on, but I think there's a different question between what is, you know, potentially ethical and that I agree with and what is effective. <laughs> Those yeah. are two different questions in my mind as you and definitely as you explained. And and yeah, I mean the question I think about is how likely are such laws to be enforced when not much of the people enforcing them and the lawmakers making them like if we were to pass such a law like if most of the police officers in this country in in the u.s aren't vegan and they see someone doing it are they going to be inclined to enforce those laws or arrest mm -hmm. people probably mm -hmm. not <laughs> probably not yeah yeah so in general you seem very concerned about uh, oppression and harm being done in the world. Would you consider yourself to be anti-oppression? Is that a term or label you would ever use? Yeah, I I would have used it five years ago uh, okay. when like it's because it was like so so clear cut and in what it meant. But right now, I think the term is basically meaningless um so i am against oppression i am technically anti-oppression but like 
uh, it's it's used so vaguely these days. It's uh, it's practically meaningless. And so right now, I think like me saying that word, saying that term to you, describe myself, creates either more confusion about what I'm saying, or it just gives gives off the wrong meaning of what I'm saying. Um, so yeah, I, I right now I wouldn't use it because, for example, saying an, you're anti-oppression can sometimes be conflated and it's very unfortunate that this has happened like uh that you are against people expressing ideas like even that is considered like some people who call themselves anti-oppression they're like against the expression of certain ideas because apparently words are words are harmful apparently and i don't agree with that uh so even though I'm technically anti-oppression, I don't use that label to describe myself. So what is the the biggest, um, if you were to sort of summarize it, what is the biggest issue you have with identity politics? And I assume that's a big piece of why you don't want to use the term anti-oppression uh, yeah, today. Yeah. Um, again, uh, I think... I think we should de define our terms and I think I'll do it this time. Uh, like identity politics used to mean something different and now it means like something completely different. Uh, it's what our um, one of our mutual friends, Catherine Klein made a video about. She calls it toxic identity politics. And uh, I think that is what I'm against. So what is toxic identity politics? It is it is things like um, just, well, I well, let's first define identity politics. It's when a, a group sort of separates itself from mainstream politics and like creates like uh, creates political movements on their own. That's what uh, identity politics initially mean. I believe I might be wrong. I'm not sure because uh, that's not what I focus on. What I focus on is toxic identity politics. And that is things like, people uh, like this is not all inclusive this is not a definition this is more examples but things like people saying uh, <laughs> if you're if you belong to a certain identity group for example what you have to say on certain matters is like irrefutable this is absolutely irrefutable so if you're like Indian like me for example what I have to say on matters concerning India is automatically more valid than someone like yourself, that would be the toxic identity politics. But the problem with that is uh, that there are a few problems. That there, are, first problem, and this is very obvious here, is that India is a country of 1.3 billion people, and there is just no way that you can have. Like, if you come to India, there is nothing we agree on. Absolutely nothing that we can agree on. It's it's as politically polarized as the United States. So, like, if you if I say something, you say another thing. Someone who espouses toxic identity politics would say, well, Soitheist is right, Aditya is right, Serena is wrong, because he is Indian on this issue, on this in this debate. But I can guarantee you that there will be another Indian in this country of 1.3 billion people who will agree with you. Okay? Who will agree with you, no matter what you say. No matter what you say, there are 1.3 billion people. I'll find one who is, agrees with you. So whom do you listen to then? Right? Who is the correct one there? 
so that's just one of the problems with that and it's also like uh, that's that's just how you demonstrate this to be nonsense but like there's another point about treating people as like adults and individuals like if you are expected to defend your views and um give defenses of your views and explain why they are right and i am not expected to do that then that's uh that's kind of treating me like a child it's like oh no he says it don't don't ask him questions don't ask him questions let's just believe him otherwise he'll be otherwise he'll be hurt no don't don't do that right? don't do that uh, ask me why why you think uh, why i think what i do think ask me to defend it and if i'm wrong i'm wrong so i i that's one of the reasons again why i disagree with toxic identity politics it's because first of all it's just demonstrably nonsense because for every person that holds one view within the group there is going to be another person within the same group that holds another view and secondly it's just we just have to treat people as adults and like respectable uh it's there's this nice quote um which goes something like uh i respect you too much as a person to respect your ridiculous beliefs <laughs> and we have to uh we have to hold that for everybody if we do in fact respect people that i i like what you said yeah it's something honestly that i i i've gone back and forth on and have mixed and i guess just nuanced feelings about because okay. yeah i mean i i totally agree with you that i think the merit of the merit and content of an idea and what is being expressed do and should matter more than who mm -hmm. is saying them right like i think we should evaluate ideas based on like is that a good idea not like well it's good if you said it but not if this person over here said it <laughs> so so yeah i think like not the identity of a person shouldn't matter in evaluating whether an idea is valid okay but the flip side of that is i think there is something to and the way i'd put this is listening to people with different experiences particularly people who do come from oppressed groups or are speaking about their experience of oppression okay i think i think and the way i'd put that is i think listening is very important agreeing and acting on that are two different things if that makes sense yes so like yes. if I, so like i agree with the idea in a lot of social justice spaces of like if i haven't experienced an oppression you know i should listen to people who have and try and understand where they're coming from mm -hmm. but i don't think that means i'm automatically required to accept everything they're saying as absolute truth and not question or you know mm -hmm. i have to automatically agree with them so that's kind of it's like i think it is really important to listen especially as a woman and like noticing because i i feel personally like i have been in a lot of spaces where i have seen sexist behaviors and and situations and i very much can see and relate to the urge of like sort of dismissing white males in the US. Like, ugh, they're just, you know, like, I, I can somewhat relate to that because I have been in many situations where I've been frustrated. Okay. And, you know, I want people, maybe other males who don't understand my experience to listen and hear what I have to say. But 
the issue that I take with, you know, toxic identity politics is like when I, I've seen people talking about, you know, animal rights online and, you know, discussing whether like the dairy industry, whether it is rape, what happens to cows. And I think it is. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people like males say that online and other people be like, you can't have an opinion at all. You're male. You don't get to, you know, use this word or say, and I'm like, Mm. okay, but is that a valid idea? Like argue with, you know, debate why you think it is or isn't rape, not dismiss it because of who said it. And so I think that kind of just dismissing things based on who said it is extremely problematic. Yeah. Um, the problem with this idea, uh, like with this mantra almost of like listen to marginalized voices is people don't. People say they do, but people don't. It's like uh, people will listen to those who are marginalized as long as they agree with them. So uh, like here's my brown person. And <laughs> someone else goes, no, here's my brown person. And, and that's like, and that's not how, you, how you're supposed to do things. Um, it's like not a valid way to argue. It's like you listen to all the perspectives. If you want to listen to marginalized people, then listen to, mar- because marginalized people are people at the end of the day, and uh, they're going to have like very varying opinions. So you have to listen to at least like all the different perspectives because you can't listen to all the different people. You have to listen to all the different perspectives from. And here's the thing. Marginalized people are going to have as diverse views as non-marginalized people in a certain, uh, on a certain issue. So this mantra of listen to the marginalized, it's kind of redundant because at the end of the day, you're going to get the same view. Like, I, I agree you should listen, but like, I don't see the merit, I, I would say, of like saying you should base your ideas on that. You sh- I think you should take in all ideas from all different kinds of people and like base your worldview on that instead of just going, oh, I listen to the marginalized person. Therefore, you know, here's here's the correct answer. No, I, I don't think that works. And like, I, I'll give you an example from my own life. Uh, most recently, I cannot name them because otherwise they're gonna sue me for defamation. Recently, there was a whole drama uh, in the Indian vegan community and I made videos on that, okay? And what happened is like people who are, who are always about like, no, like listen to the marginalized and that kind of stuff, they, they are like, no, no, this person, like even though I am marginalized within India, like more sort of I have more oppression points let's say than them uh, because I have more degrees of like I, I do in fact like I, I come, as I said earlier I come from a marginalized region of India I'm tribal within that I come from a tribal background within that region and this doesn't apply to the people who are attacking me so they were like they're always like listening to the marginalized but the moment I disagreed with them they're like no we're, we're gonna sue you so that was, I think, very weird. And they're also like very anti-establishment, but then they call the cops on me. So it's it's a nice mantra, listen to the marginalized, but I, I don't see it being very fruitful. I think it's like, listen to different perspectives from different people. And yeah, sure, listen to the marginalized because you're, it's not that you cannot have good views. Like there are certain things that a white person simply wouldn't be able to tell you about racism because 
as I said earlier, at the very beginning of this, I try to base my um, worldview on reasoning and science, but there is an emotive side to everything. So emotions, I think, uh, cannot be, it's like that telephone game where one person says one thing and it goes, and then that person says it to the next and then to the next and then to the next. And at the end of it, it's something completely different. I think emotions are like very much like that. It's like when one person says it, you okay, you hear something. Um, but the, when they say it to the next person, they they describe what they understood. So the white person will always describe something different than someone with uh, direct experience, for example, of racism. And this is not just white people, brown people. It's just a general thing that happens. It's that when you hear something, when you say it back, you just say what you understood. And because a white person never experiences anti-black racism or anti-brown racism or whatever, they cannot provide the emotive side of it that well because, well, they didn't experience it themselves. So they can't express their emotions uh, and emotions are very difficult to put down. Like maybe you can put down the formula like E equals MC squared and everyone understands it. Well, not everyone understands it, but everyone knows what it is, E equals MC squared. But emotions, I don't think you can write them down like that. It's very difficult because even that there's also the point of like, how well can you express your emotions and that kind of stuff. No, yeah, uh, that, that's that makes sense. And, and I think I should maybe clarify when I say, I do think it's important to listen to people. I mean, particularly kind of an example you gave around issues of oppression where one person has not experienced and will not experience. So I'm not, so to me, it's like, I shouldn't listen to you or someone who is, you know, comes from a more oppressed place than me on every issue in the world. But if we're talking about racism, Or, you know, likewise, if I'm talking with a male about sexism, where there's that Mm -hmm. difference, that's where I would say I think it's particularly important that we listen. Because I will never know what it is like to have darker skin. Mm. Um, That's, you know, I I will never have experienced, I will never experience that. I have never experienced that. And Mm -hmm. so to me... (laughs) And likewise. Yeah. So yeah, I think it is important that that's where people listen to each other. Of course... I don't think that's how the phrase is being used or um, followed, as you mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, mostly it's about taking sides and people finding their person that agrees with them, (laughs) holding them up. And yeah, so it's it's very interesting. But another thing that you that I saw you've been talking about recently, you talk about like western bias or like hyper western privilege a lot but you've been talking about it recently in terms of climate change i think when like the eu had some really big heat waves you pointed you was that you okay you pointed that out as being like western bias by the media um can you tell me more about that yeah oh for sure so um for example in the city of delhi that's the national capital of india there were like tremendous heat waves, temperatures going up to 45 degrees Celsius. And that was written about to some extent in international media, but not not nearly to the extent as one would expect, like one would hope. There were like a few posts by international media outlets on this. And even like 
Indian media outlets, they were like not very concerned with it. And even if they were concerned about it, they were mostly concerned about, oh, it's going to be hot. And that's it. No one talked about climate change when that happened. Uh, when the UK had like heat waves that would go up to 40 degrees Celsius, so less, everyone starts talking about it. Okay. So I thought that was like, oh, like Western people have to experience this. So, so the media covers it. And the thing is, it's, and here it, it is like a very comparable case here because it, these are both heat waves. But there are other issues that do not get covered at all. Like uh, there have been floods in the state of Assam, the state where I come from, and like 700,000 plus people were affected wow. by it and like displaced and many, like not 700,000 people dead, but many dead. Many people were displaced. Many people lost their homes. Uh, even if people didn't lose their homes, it, they were damaged by the floods and that kind of stuff. But even within India, no one wrote about it, right? No one wrote about it. Um, like not no one, but like it was like it didn't barely get the coverage that it deserved. Like imagine if something like that happens in London, uh, 700,000 Londoners being affected by flood. It would be all over the news. Like you can you can guarantee that it'd be all over the news. So it's like there is the sort of Western centrism that goes on in the world. And I think that's uh, deeply unfair. And it's also the uh, it's it's also the basis of why so many Westerners. I'll give you another example of Western centrism, not related to climate change. When I talk about veganism and animal rights, I made a video response to someone called. Uh, Sheena Nova, who is a Canadian influencer on TikTok. And I made the video and I was like, uh, I was like, okay, here's why eating animals is unethical. Someone comments on there, settlers should stop telling natives what to do. I'm like, come on, there is a world outside, you know, the West. How am I a settler? I'm an Indian, I'm Indian living in India. And I'm also indigenous tribal living in India. And these people are like, no, no, you're a settler because well, I'm not native American or native Canadians. Uh, so there's another example of Western centrism and it, uh, the list goes on. They really didn't like lose that argument when you said, when you said like, I'm an Indian living in India, they like still persisted in calling you a settler. Uh, they, well, they didn't persist in calling me a settler, but they still uh, stuck on to the point of like, no, no, you sh still shouldn't tell Native Canadians what to do. And like, why not? It's like if, and there mostly it was like privilege. And I'm like, come on, that's, that's just not, that's just not real. Like there is just no way that you can argue honestly and like in fairly that Indians like they okay okay this is another thing people when they hear the word Indians in the West they think of Indian Americans who are like some of the richest people in the on the planet right the average income of an Indian American house, household is like above a hundred thousand dollars per year and the average income of an Indian in India is like seven thousand dollars per year so there's a big difference so when talking about privilege, it's like uh, like an Indian in India is very different from an Indian American in the U.S. Uh, so again, there's again the Western centrism at there. 
when people when people see me they are like oh indian means indian american he has the same levels of privilege as indian american that's not true uh, and i am more privileged than like the uh like the person sleeping on the street right now outside so th- there are like different levels to this again this goes back to like identity politics and this all it, it does all relate uh, together so yeah there's again this this western centrism it's just it's a problem uh, to say the least yeah no it's it's so interesting to me because i feel like so many of the ideas you express when western centrism um the things that you're concerned about actually very much fall into the definition like we said before of anti-oppression of being like in support of of liberation um social Mm -hmm. justice but just not not the way those terms seem to be used but to me like it seems like you're very concerned about cultural issues and oppression Mm -hmm. and indigenous communities and um so i just that's i find that very interesting that this is the position that we're in yeah it is interesting very interesting uh it's that these words have been almost polluted by the people who identify with them i'd say so as we wrap up where can people Mm -hmm. uh, go to find find you um and learn more about you online Okay, uh, so my main sort of thing is my YouTube, where I put it put out more well thought out uh, videos and um, yeah, more like it's it's very uh, very well thought out, very well planned and that kind of stuff. So if you want really detailed, well planned videos and content, that's where you go. It's Soy Theist on YouTube. Uh, the way you spell it is S O Y T H E I S T. And if you want something very snappy, very quick, then that's where you go to my Twitter. And again, it's uh, it's the same on Twitter. And like, if you want something in between those two, maybe you don't have time for YouTube, but you want something more, um, more, um, like more detailed than Twitter, then that's where you go to my Instagram. So it's like three platforms uh, all provide like it's like different levels of detail that goes into each one of them. So yeah, that's where people can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you. And I really enjoyed this conversation with you. And I really, I really appreciate that you are interested and willing to engage in ideas and have conversations, even when, you know, we may disagree or have different perspectives. To me, that's like one of the biggest, you know, in talking about listening to people, another thing that I think is important is yeah engaging having conversations with people when you agree or disagree and not just blocking people and shutting down conversations so i I definitely really appreciate that (laughs) and i really appreciate the work you're doing and uh talking about veganism and um so thank you for this conversation and coming on the podcast today thank you and likewise i appreciate your work and what you've been doing it's really insightful And thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, It's been an honor. Thanks so much for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode or are enjoying the podcast as a whole and want to support me and help get this information in front of more people, I would love it if you could share this episode and also leave a rating and review of the podcast 
in the iTunes or Spotify app or wherever else you are listening from. 